This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. And I'm Ariana Brocious. Often the climate conversation has been about tailpipes and smokestacks. But it's not all about how we move or how we produce energy. One of the big overlooked levers is what we eat. Our food system accounts for one-third of human-caused emissions. That's a lot. And there's a lot of factors at play for why that is. But raising meat and dairy is a big part of it. And while we're electrifying transportation and building solar and wind farms, not as much is being done to reduce emissions from the food system. And honestly, while addressing climate can feel daunting, this is one area where I personally feel like I have a little agency. I've been mostly vegetarian for about 20 years, and I know that my diet alone won't make a difference, but it makes me feel like I'm living aligned with my climate values. And this is kind of a complicated area to get into because people can feel implicitly judged when you make decisions about your own diet. So I've never been one to convince others what they should eat. But we know if collectively we ate less meat and less dairy, we could really begin to impact some of these huge systems. I've been off meat for years except for an occasional burger on a road trip, and now I can get a plant-based burger at a fast food joint on the highway, and I just feel better. And we know that there's good data to show that red meat in particular and some saturated fats aren't really good for our systems in large quantities. And again, I come back to this feeling like this is not about judgment. It's about trying to bring ourselves into better balance with the planet that we live on. And it's not just about climate issues. The food system hits about every issue we care about. Equity, compassion, justice. And that's what motivated Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey to get on the Agriculture Committee, because he finds all these issues that are important to him wrapped up in our agricultural system. When we started really looking at our food system, I was stunned to realize how savagely broken it is Our food system is broken. Big food makes us sick, selling us highly processed food that's not good for us and often has significant carbon impacts. And it's not just the carbon, it's the people and the economies too, because like so many parts of our economy, agriculture is becoming dominated by fewer and fewer companies who wield most of the power and then receive most of the benefits. Row crop farmers, people in the Midwest and Great Plains who mostly grow corn and soy, are incentivized to amass larger and larger farms to make a profit, and then that mechanization of agriculture has resulted in a dramatic loss in the number of people who actually make a living that way in the last few decades. Concentration of power is a problem for consumers in many industries. Airlines, just about any industry, seeing a large degree of consolidation. We see that in big tech. And as power becomes more concentrated, it tends to lack empathy. And as we'll hear about in our conversation today, There's a lot of places where this lack of empathy comes through. It's not just about animal welfare. It's about people that live in agricultural communities and their livelihoods and the ways they can market their products. It's about the environmental justice that comes from having large dairies and feedlots in communities. It's about all these things intersecting. It's about you going to the grocery store and trying to buy a steak and how much it costs. All of these things are kind of tied in together. And I've been around a lot of politicians who are very charismatic, and I got a real genuine sense of empathy from Senator Booker, who clearly has cultivated a sense of presence through his mindfulness. And I sat down with him recently at the Commonwealth Club of California with a live audience. He's a gifted storyteller and started the conversation with a story that surprised many in the audience. I always try to tell stories, and there's where histories replete, our own lives are replete, with the small actions of individuals making big changes. I always tell people the quick story about a white guy sitting on a couch in New Jersey watching TV and seeing the crisis on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And he is so disturbed by these people being beaten with billy clubs and gas that he decides to go to Alabama then laughs because he can't afford a plane ticket, not to mention to close his business. And so all he says, well, I'm going to give an hour a week of pro bono work to a civil rights organization in New Jersey and finds this one called the Fair Housing Council, works with them over the years to design these test cases where you send a black couple to look at a house, they're turned away, and a white couple comes. Five years later, after they get good at it, they they amazingly, he says he gets a case file of a black family coming up from the South looking for communities with great public schools and is turned away from housing. They set up a sting operation. And the black couple's told the house is sold. The white couple puts a bid on the house for the black family. Bid's accepted. Papers are drawn up. On the day of the closing, they, the white couple doesn't show up. The lawyer and the black man does. They get attacked in the real estate agent's office. Real estate agent punches uh, the, the lawyer and sigs a dog on the black guy. But after a lot of legal rigmarole, the, white, the black family in 1969 moves into the home, has this incredible community, incredible public schools. And 41 years later, 
the baby in that family becomes America's fourth black person ever popularly elected to the United States Senate, me. And, and so a lot of people underestimate what a small action on big issues can actually do when it ripples out in time and space. So don't discount your power. The most common way people give up their power is not realizing they have it in the first place. And even if you can't do everything about an issue, do something today that you didn't do yesterday. Do something this year that you didn't do last year to be a part of a larger movement for change when it comes to climate. And, and food is one area where climate can often seem very abstract, like power plants and things remote from people. But food is a place where people, if you're fortunate, you can vote three times a day with, with your fork. I didn't know that you know, agriculture is the third largest industry in New Jersey. So talk about food and climate and what brought you to be so passionate about food. Well, I, I, on the point we were making before, a lot of it is our, our you know, uh, W.B. Du Bois in The Souls of Black Folk talked about the tragedy of man, forgive the uh, genderized language, but the tragedy of humanity is that we know so little about each other. And the, the, a lot of things that allow injustice to fester is not being focused on learning about your neighbor, learning about your fellow person. And that means that we often get involved in these very impersonal systems that sustain and perpetuate injustices. Like I always say that I did not know the ills of fast fashion, for example, and I bought t-shirts, wore things, just never put my thought into, wait a minute, who made the shoes I'm wearing? What were the providence of, of the clothing I'm wearing? And how am I, through my dollars and my ignorance, participating in systems that are pushing injustice on the individuals who are making them, injustice on our environment. And so for me, um, I never imagined 10 years ago when I got to the United States Senate that I would be battling, not really battling, but having to ask and maneuver myself to get onto the agricultural committee. I just never thought I would do it. And I did it because one of my great staff members came up to me and said, every issue you care about, all the issues you care about, and have been working on intersect within our food system. Mm -hmm. And the more I listened, first I laughed at him, then I joined him, which is often <laughs> uh, the process. Uh, um, but I thought, you're insane. What do I want to sit on the Ag Committee for? But when we started really looking at our food system, I was stunned to realize how savagely broken it is. And the only people it really works for are these big multinational corporations that more and more are controlling everything that we eat. It, it is a system that's broken for farmers. If you interview farmers, the majority of American farmers are actually small farmers, but the system does not support them. They have higher suicide rates. They're going out of business at alarming rates. This is mass consolidation of farmers. It's broken for farm workers. Uh, I was challenged by the United uh, Farm Workers uh, Association to go out and work a farm. I was stunned at, number one, how difficult the work it was. Um, me and Padilla, your senator, were the only two senators to take up their challenge and work a day on farms. And But what was more stunning to me, besides the fact that I was sore for days and days afterwards, um, was just having conversations with the farm workers about sexual harassment, wage theft. It's broken for our ecology. Um, the, what we prioritize and emphasize and incentivize is a farm system that poisons our lands, poisons our rivers and streams, uh, causes flooding. Even though farmers are great stewards of the land, they're pushed into a system that often is very destructive. Uh, it's broken for our environment, climate change issues. It's broken for the end user. I give this last example of how Americans are trapped in this unjust system because their government is subsidizing all the foods that make us sick. While one part of government tells you half of your diet should be fresh fruits and vegetables, uh, less than 10% of our ag subsidies go to that. And so kids in San Francisco or in Oakland could walk into a corner store and find a Twinkie product cheaper than an apple, not because of the free market, but because government has decided that we're gonna cheapen the Happy Meal, we're gonna cheapen the Twinkie, and all the other stuff that we want you to eat, we're gonna make more expensive, harder to access, uh, and drive rates of disease that most Americans should be stunned by. We live in a nation right now where one out of three of our government dollars, your tax dollars, is being spent on healthcare. And to pay for healthcare where the majority of the things we're paying for are preventable diseases, the majority of them are diet-related diseases. So this food system is broken for everybody, but mostly it's broken for all of us because we are seeing in America diabetes rates, 
hypertension, all of these rates of illness and disease and suffering spiking up. And our government is fueling that because they're subsidizing the fast food food or the highly hyper-processed foods. And then we're paying for it again on Medicaid, Medicare, and healthcare benefits. There is a way out of this broken system. And that's one of the reasons why we move to the Ag Committee, start finding common sense, win-win solutions to get America out of this sickness, illness, economic injustice, environmental injustice, climate uh, uh, fueling uh, injustice, as well as injustice for American farmers. Big Ag gets us sick and big farmers there to sell us pills when yes. we get sick. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, well, we're at this moment now where talking about this food system, the farm bill comes up every five years. It is happening now. Uh, this is a big, unwieldy thing. Uh, what would you like to see in the farm bill to make both a healthier people and a healthier planet? You know, there's been some talk about climate smart agriculture getting into the farm bill. What would you, it's this big, massive thing. What would you like to see in it? Well, I want to set the stage a little bit. Um, so my team has put out a suite of bills, often uh, endorsed by the farmers union, by healthcare groups, by environmental groups, to deal with our food system. Whole suite that involves with everything from composting to food waste to big factory farms, CAFOs, um, to the use of overuse of antibiotics in our food system. We decided to put up a whole bunch of bills that can point to the way out and. We want to show folks that it doesn't have to be this way, and there are smart policy solutions that can do something about it. More than this, though, we wanted to go a little deeper and start talking about, unfortunately, the power of big ag in Washington. People often think that the oil industry is one of the most powerful lobbies. I would say that actually big food is more powerful because of their deep influence in the way we draw our policy up on both sides of the aisle. So simply is something that should not be controversial, should be based on science, like nutrition standards or school lunch programs become these hotbeds of fights for folks that want to continue to push unhealthy food, deeply sugar-filled processed foods, and, and, and we're aware of that. So here's this farm bill, as you said, that rolls in every five years. We have tried to put out bills about the way to go, and what we're trying to do now is have some realpolitik on one hand about what knobs can we turn in this farm bill that could get us closer to some of our ambitious goals for health, well-being, climate change, and more? But at the same time, what I think is lacking in every great movement is just that courageous empathy we started with. You know, I, I look at, I'm a product of civil rights activist parents who would tell me that the civil rights movement wasn't a movement of black people for black rights. It was a conscious movement of creating a movement based on our common ideals and our common values. But the biggest obstacle was getting people to understand the crisis in our country that they were participating in and that their silence and inaction was contributing to. So the great thing about these uh, incredible artists of activism in the civil rights movement is they found ways to dramatize what other people could not see. That's why the big standoff with Bull Connor, the big um, protests um, that they were able to do that all of a sudden got people off the sidelines to realize what's happening. So this farm bill, I'll talk about the specific objectives we have, but our ability to make the change is really dependent upon the average American understanding that the system is broken and that I can do something because there is not enough political will yet uh, to make the kind of dramatic changes. So in the farm bill, there's a number of different areas where we're trying to turn knobs up. So one of them is this understanding to trust American farmers. They're very good stewards of the land, and they often know that they're doing things that are killing their soil, soil which is rich in biodiversity, rich in the power to sequester carbon, to hold on to water. What's happened now is things that are allowing too much runoff, drought, poisoning their soil. I remember going to meet with a Republican farmer in the Midwest who told me, I used to be able to fish in my creek. I used to be able to drink from my well. But since the CAFO has moved here, I can't do either anymore. And so what we saw when I got onto the Ag Committee is that there are some very small programs in the Ag Committee, things like EQIP and that have acronyms that I probably can't name every word for, but environmental programs that incentivize farmers to engage in environmental practices that help to create those win-win-win-wins. But they were way oversubscribed. 
So one of the things in the Inflation Reduction Act that my team was able to do was to put billions of dollars into these programs, which farmers rejoiced in, because now they're able to do things like cover crops, rotational grazing, and other things that we know fundamentally can not only help farmers be more successful, but actually can do things that help uh, our ecology and our um and our environment. And so those are the programs we're going after now to say, can we expand certain things? The one other specific example I'll give you, and I could go on talking about the Farm Bill for a long time, but I want you to know this is a, a one example because a Farm Bill has two sides, sort of agricultural programs, but another big part of the Farm Bill is food stamps. Mm, SNAP is the biggest part of it. SNAP. And remember what SNAP is, Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program. I'm not exaggerating. Coke and Pepsi make billions of dollars annually. Think about this for a second, because of SNAP payments being used to buy sugar water. Billions of dollars. And the, the correlation between sugar waters and, and diabetes rates is, is stunning. And what used to be adult onset diabetes is now proliferating in our children and our families. Half of Americans now are diabetic or pre-diabetic. Stunningly, a quarter of our children are diabetic or pre-diabetic. And so there's some people that think we should go about this by banning the use of SNAP on certain things. That becomes politically fraught. What we want to do is expand the programs to create incentives. So let me give you an example. When I was mayor of the city of Newark, we knew we had a crisis of food deserts all around our city, and we were trying to expand access. We did a lot of different creative things, but one of the things I loved was taking massive plots of city land and turning them into farms. One of them was an entire city block in a very low-income neighborhood in Newark that we turned into an urban farm. I returned to that farm recently to, to film a documentary, Food Inc. 2, um, and did not realize as I'm filming it that women would be coming up and wanting to offer their testimony. So I'll never forget these two elder African-American women. One had gut issues that we, she had uh, uh, $700 worth of prescription drugs to deal with the problems she was having in her gut. Uh, her copay was $100, and then the rest of it was being picked up by taxpayers, these prescription drugs. Um, but as soon as she started sourcing her food from an organic urban farm in her neighborhood, her gut issues went away. The other one was an octogenarian who had diabetes for years, and she has a little now uh, uh, Instagram account about being a vegan in her 80s. But she, she actually reversed her diabetes completely. And, and, and so the program that they were taking advantage of that we were talking about has a terrible name, GusNip, um, uh, but it's, it's basically the double bucks program, where if I go to the supermarket and use $1 of my SNAP to buy sugar water or highly processed food, I get a dollar, a dollar like any consumer. But if I go to fresh fruits and vegetable markets, um, I can get double that. And when I went there, I used $10 to buy an amount of food at this uh, urban uh, farm. I couldn't believe how much food I put Whole Foods to shame. Um, but then I realized that other people using SNAP payments could double that amount. And so what we believe in our philosophy right now in this fight, until the consciousness of our country gets higher and higher and higher, and by the way, when you create these points of light, all of us want to condemn darkness. When people point, create points of light, show the way, it attracts a lot of attention. We want to expand these programs that can show dramatically that we can make a difference in people's lives for local farmers and others if we do these things. So we want to expand the GustNet program. We want to expand programs that incentivize farmers in their practices. We're in the Farm Bill looking to do things. Okay, well, you know what? I may not be able to, to end the over-subsidization of highly processed foods, but we had a hearing last week in Washington um, with uh, a local, uh, what they call specialty crop farmers. What are specialty crops in America? Fruits and vegetables. <laughs> I mean, it's the majority of what we're told to eat. The commodity crops are going to things like ethanol standards in, in, in gasoline. They're going to uh, feed, not food, but feed for animals. It's the number one reasons for rainforest deforestation right now is clearing land to grow commodity crops to feed uh, uh, animals. And so what we said is, well, let's talk about why can't people who do specialty crops get crop insurance? 
or other programs that help to sustain the growth of these more regional local farms that actually create more resilient uh, of, of food systems. So that's what we're looking at in the farm bills. What dials can we turn up? What changes can we make? What pilot programs can we put in to advance the cause and create more points of light that can begin to cast away the darkness and show people like the North Star the way to go? You're listening to a Climate One conversation about our food system with Senator Cory Booker. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. You can do it right now on your device. On our new website, you can create and share playlists focused on topics including food, energy, EVs, activism, and more. Coming up, the ripple effects of a pivot away from globalized supply chains. We know that when we create holistic, localized systems that for food and other critical supply chain um, um, elements, that we are a stronger, more resilient, and uh, more nationally secure society. That's up next. Let's get back to my conversation with Senator Cory Booker. Recently, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in favor of California, allowing the state to uphold a proposition that forbids the sale of pork meat from places where pigs are confined in gestation crates, barely larger than the pig's body. California won. It's the only one, only time I've ever written a amicus brief to the Supreme Court. Maybe my law professors now will uh, uh, respect the fact that I actually <laughs> uh, used my law degree. Um, uh, but but um, California is doing so many things that are forcing because you're you know 40 plus million uh, people here uh, in such a big powerful consumer market. When you all make changes, it's hard for those corporations not to have to change their practices nationwide. And, and I'm really grateful. These propositions on humane raising of animals, these propositions on things like uh, or these laws you are all passing, things like composting, make such a big difference. And so uh, comp my team looked at this composting problem. And again, um, we think that what's lacking in America is a composting infrastructure. And, and what we're trying to do through our composting law is to create more incentives for state and local communities to shift towards composting. And the power of it, as you alluded to, is that we have a, a, a first of all, we have a food waste problem. We have another bill all about food waste, but we have a food waste problem in this country that is horrific. About a third of our food is wasted and goes into landfills that create methane, which is significantly more uh, harmful to our uh, climate problem uh, than, than carbon. And so what we have uh, said is let's figure out a way not to punish, not to make people complain, uh, my friends on the right, about overregulation, but let's start creating grants and incentives for to build out that infrastructure and show, again, points of light of people that are using that composting in such constructive ways, where instead of throwing something away, you compost it and you're actually creating industries, you're creating uh, 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 materials for farmers to use in growing foods. It has, again, this multiplier effect for the investment of a government dollar in the growth of, of local economies, in the support of, of local agricultural industries, and more. And so that's what folks uh, uh, lose in this whole thing. And, and we all, in our language, have to start getting away from falling into the partisan divide. And it's really problematic when you have issues that should unite Americans around common values. And I understand there are big concentrated corporate interests, but when you start having conversations with human beings and started around what our common values are, you can often arrive at policy conclusions that make it hard for the big corporate concentration to, to, to go. And so, so one part there, we're talking a lot about carrots or whether it's incentivizing people to buy an apple versus a Twinkie, yes. you know, voluntary thing. One thing in the IRA was it's basically a tax bill that rewards people for buying a, a heat pump or electric car, et cetera. It's not the regulatory stick that Democrats usually wield. Exactly. So, and the Republicans in this recent um, you know, debt ceiling thing that I don't want to get into very much because I'm kind of sick of it, um, is that... One reason they didn't go after the IRA, because it is that it's tax policy, it's carrots. Do you think that Democrats should learn a lesson from this and use incentives more and less of that regulatory approach that they're so known for? A hundred percent. We have got to find ways, understanding politics. And again, as consciousness grows, more things become possible. Civil rights legislation failed for years until consciousness grew and we were able to get things done. 
But for now, we have got to be better at looking for win-wins and not falling into our partisan divides. Creating incentives is a good way, especially if I can demonstrate to you, and again, the way the Congressional Budget Office measures things often provides difficulty, but when you can demonstrate that this active action you're incentivizing will help to encourage behavior that provides a greater societal benefit and often a greater economic benefit as well. And we as Democrats need to focus on those strategies and then defend them because there are interests, like for example, the billions of dollars we got into climate smart solutions for farmers, that money is being gone after now. Uh, that in, in, uh, in the coming budget battles, they're going to be trying to cut a lot of these wins that the Biden administration got that actually farmers love. I love that Chuck Grassley and I, with a lot of our differences, were able to come together and fight in my early days in the Senate for wind tax credits. Um, because when I went out to Iowa to run for president, I was surprised at how many uh, wind farms I saw on farm. Farmers were getting win-wins with that. And so when you do programs that actually benefit people, Despite their party, they begin to defend the fight for those programs. They call that mailbox money. Yes, right. exactly. Farmers call it, it's money that they're going to get. And that's why I, I, I have fallen in love with farmers the more I sit with them. Again, Republican or Democrat, they may identify different parties than me, but we share common values. People in my inner city of Newark and farmers in the Midwest they may have a lot of things that they may seem to divide us, but the lines that tie those groups together are so strong that if we start to affirm those connections, we can overcome the political gridlock. You also sit on the Foreign Relations Committee, and one thing that unites Republicans and Democrats these days seems to be you know, uh, banging on China. Yes. And China's commonly cited as enemy for, for both parties. China also happens to control most of the supply chain for both solar panels and batteries and that are needed to transition away from fossil fuels. So how does the escalating tensions with China fit into the energy transition? Right. Can well, you hurt, talk about harm the, one by doing the other? Right. I try to talk about the Chinese government. And, and often when people say China, and I, I heard this from the previous president, it fuels a lot of hate towards Chinese Americans and towards Asian Americans in general. And at a time with the skyrocketing uh, hate crimes against Asian Americans in this country, um, we, it's important that we remind people. Thank you. My, my yeah. wife is Chinese, my kids are biracial, and they, they are afraid of the, of, the, of the anger. I mean, I cannot tell you, uh, coming to San Francisco and hearing a lot of my Asian American friends talk to me about uh, the hate crimes that are there and, and something we should keep present. And so the Chinese government is, is definitely um, doing things that should have us all conscious. I, I mean, the pandemic was full of uh, lessons, collateral lessons, despite the over a million Americans that died as a result of COVID. We should not lose the lessons that came from this, that horrific uh, pandemic. And one of them is these things like supply chain, uh, um, um, uh, security, and defense. And so when it comes to the unifying um, uh, uh, Democrats and Republicans around this idea of China competition, it's working across the board. And one of the reasons why Joe Biden had perhaps the most successful Congress in my lifetime, um, because everything from the CHIPS Act to the IRA, a lot of these things were about doing things to counter China. Um, and again, the globalization, we can argue about pros, cons of all of it, but we know that when we create holistic, localized systems that for food and other critical supply chain um, um, elements, that we are a stronger, more resilient, and uh, more nationally secure society. And so that is another way uh, that I'm finding alliances with Republicans, again, that people on the right like to, to, to often demonize. But from Lindsey Graham uh, to young uh, Republicans like uh, Young, there's this, uh, to Mitt Romney, there's a lot of really good alliances going on that are doing things that are going to help our country have greater national security, but also have incredibly uh, inspiring in, in environmental uh, um, benefits as well. And Chris Coons and Kevin Kramer, Republican, have a new bipartisan bill on, on, on uh tariffs, which is partly aimed at China to get, get at that. But you know, there's a race is also part of, um, we're talking about racial relations in China. It's also part of food. And the USDA is responsible for implementing the farm bill. And yet the agency has a real historic 
problem with racist practices. Last year, I talked with John Boyd, president of the National Black Farmers Association. He told me personal stories of his application for farm operating loans being thrown in the trash can by a USDA official who was later found guilty of discrimination, but still allowed to keep his job. Let's hear from John Boyd. We had two settlements, but nobody was ever fired. No senior person at USDA or well, no local person, for, for that matter, was ever fired for the act of discrimination. And as I organized the further, I went south, Mississippi, Alabama, and Arkansas, Tennessee, Louisiana. The discrimination was more pervasive and, and subtle, where many Blacks weren't even given a, a loan application, you know? I was given one. Mine was tossed in the trash can and all kinds of stuff that, uh, that I personally faced. But the further I went south, the more egregious and more blatant the discrimination uh, was for, for Black farmers. John Boyd, president of the National Black Farmers Association. Senator, your reaction to John Boyd and what the USDA is doing to address its legacy? Yeah, John's become a strong ally of my office um, as soon as the Biden administration uh, won uh, the, their, their election that got them the presidency. And we saw with the shift in Congress, we immediately went to the administration to try to start doing things that would rectify these specific past harms. And John's one story, but lots of great news organizations uh, around the country have elevated these stories of black farmers who have been cheated, uh, uh, denied resources, discriminated against. It is stunning. Black farmers used to control, uh, there used to be over a million black farmers in America, proportionate to the population of African Americans as a whole, coming out of slavery, Blacks return to the land. But that history, especially even since 1950, Blacks have been moved off their land, uh, continuously losing opportunities and dwindling down to a very small amount. And so I've taken this problem on and won some victories, got court uh, uh, battles that set back, uh, but still have some resources right now in the billions of dollars of trying to help African-American farmers and, and farmers who've been subject to specific discrimination but it's still not enough. This is one of the sadder chapters. And when we think about generational wealth in this country, um, the number of Americans that could trace their family wealth to the Homestead Act, for example, or other policies which, which excluded uh, 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 predominantly African-Americans, it is a very sad chapter that contributes to uh, a lot of the income disparities that we have today. We as an, a society have to uh, begin to look for ways to when, especially when there's a specific measurable harm, uh, to looking at those communities and finding ways to make them whole. It is the very ideal of America to be a nation of liberty and justice for all. But these are a lot of farmers in America who are very frustrated that have faced unimaginable injustice and haven't found a way to be made whole and made it, made it, make it right. Meat accounts for about 60% of greenhouse gas emissions from food production. One of the biggest tensions in climate conversations is the, the weight of individual choices versus actions. You know, Americans are meeting less meat, and by that I mean beef, not poultry or, or fish, uh, per capita over the last uh, few years. But what should the average person focus on building a more healthy and just food system? Well, I, I think these are personal choices we all make, and I'm one of these folks I'm a vegan, uh, um, but I'm one of these folks, the last thing I want my government to do is to tell me what to eat. Uh, very undeal of freedom is eat whatever you want. But I will tell you this, I don't want my government picking winners and losers. I don't want my government that is subsidizing some foods to the, to the harm of other foods. We should be creating a far more level playing field and understanding that we are a nation right now that is using practices, forget your diet for a second, that are unsustainable. And as the entire planet Earth is moving more towards the standard American diet, sad, as, a, as the globe is moving more towards our diet, we will probably need about four planet Earths just to have the land necessary to feed the exploding demand for pork, chicken, and beef. These are not, the way we are doing these practices right now are not sustainable. So I'm just a big believer that we need to start looking at alternative proteins. We need to start making a, a more awareness out there of different alternatives, but, and also stop picking winners and losers. 
That said, there's exciting things going on, whether you're vegan or vegetarian or carnivore or what have you, there's a lot of exciting things going on that should inform us all in our policy decisions and perhaps maybe even our personal decisions. So just take, I just sat with uh, Dr. Mark Hyman uh, yesterday or day before yesterday in my office, and all he wanted to do was talk to this vegan about buffalo. <laughs> and, and, um, and, and Mark is a, is a, he believes that you should reduce the meat, increase vegetables, but he uh, loves his meat and he loves uh, eggs. And, um, but he was telling me about this powerful buffalo regenerative farm that he had been to. And I was blown away by what he was talking about because this, they're doing rotational grazing and, and environmentally practices that really harken back to the days that buffalo used to roll the plains. And so he went to explore it and he said he couldn't believe what this regenerative buffalo farm has achieved. He said that, especially when you compare them to others that are doing it the standard American way. Factory farms. Yeah. Factory farms. And he said, in this, these prairies, the biodiversity exploded. Species of plants that, that roamed the plain that people hadn't seen in years and years and years. The soil became biodiverse. The nutrients in the soil, um, it was exploding again with life, not dirt, but soil. And then he said what was really interesting to him was because the soil held water, and I've seen these pictures of people who do farming with chemicals that kill everything in the soil, and it's dirt and it's flooding, rolling one off right next to farms that use regenerative practices that are green, that are rich. You can see the life in the soil. But the thing that he that I had never heard before that marked it to me was he said that in this these vast acreage, um, historically there had been streams and rivers in them, but they had all dried up. But as soon as they turned it back, because the soil was holding so much water, the streams, the rivers, the creeks came back and flowing to the point that neighbors were jealous of, wait a minute, how did you get this water back on your land? And they weren't doing anything. They weren't out there watering. It was just the power of nature to heal itself if you go back to these regenerative practices. And so I'm, I, again, I want people to be happy. I think joy should be the center of our, our, of our being. So I'm not telling you what to eat, but the more I find that I grow my consciousness and align my diet, my shopping habits, especially those of us who are privileged enough to have some flexibility and are not living paycheck to paycheck, which unfortunately is 40 plus percent of Americans, but be, the ability to align your values and your personal habits uh, together, that's integrity. We've been talking with Cory Booker about how the ag industry is dominated by a few major multinational corporations. Let's pause that conversation to take a closer look at one way cattle ranchers are attempting to circumvent the tightly controlled meat market. The meat industry has transformed since the 1980s when the Reagan administration loosened antitrust laws. Today, just four companies control 80% of the market. That's meant higher prices for consumers and a lower return for people raising the animals. Senator Cory Booker is critical of how that economic concentration hurts ranchers and rural communities, and of the larger system of factory farms, or CAFOs, concentrated animal feeding operations, where most of our meat comes from. His Farm System Reform Act would address monopolistic practices of meat packers and put a moratorium on large factory farms. As Elizabeth Rembert reports, one group of ranchers in Nebraska is creating their own meatpacking plant to gain greater financial sustainability. Hundreds of cows crowd close to the edges of a pen to push their necks through a fence and get to the golden grains in a feed trough. Trey Wasserberger looks out at the cattle from his pickup. He works at this feed yard alongside his father-in-law outside of North Platte, Nebraska. These will be probably ready to go here in the next 30 or 40 days and um, they'll go to uh, a large packer and they'll be in the beef supply chain in 60 days probably. Wasserberger adds up the time it takes to breed, birth, and raise the cattle on ranches to get them to this point. Jeez, yeah, you're talking this is a three-year deal probably to get here. And now the feed yard work starts. Cassie Lapisotis and her family run a feed yard in western Nebraska and says it's kind of like how you expect a clean bed at a hotel. 
So when these cattle come into a feed yard, we want their pens to be clean, their water tanks to be clean, the feed to be freshly laid out in front of them. Wasserberger and Lapisotis are proud of how they take care of their animals to bring quality meat to the market. But when companies buy their cattle to turn it into steaks, they basically get a predetermined rate, which is based on the price of cattle that's a much lower quality than what Wasserberger and Lapisotis are raising. It'd be like an Audi and a Kia, and the Kia sets the price for the Audi. It's a broken system. Right now, their paychecks don't reflect the sweat, science, and money they've invested. Not yet. That's where sustainable beef comes in. Wasserberger and Lapisotis are founders and board members of Sustainable Beef, a meatpacking plant owned and designed by ranchers and cattle feeders. The cattle are raised in line with most large-scale practices around the country. Wasserberger and his father-in-law are planning to integrate solar panels, manure collection, and methane gas recovery to lessen their environmental footprint. The ranchers hope that keeping processing closer to home can help them regain control and profit to keep their livelihoods sustainable into the future. The idea gained momentum after the pandemic when COVID forced packers to limit operations and turn away market-ready cattle. I still remember June of 2020, we couldn't get any cattle in anywhere. I lost a third of my equity in cattle almost overnight. It was a new low as ranchers lost buyers and shoppers faced empty shelves. But it wasn't a new problem. For decades, companies like Tyson, Cargill, JBS, and National Beef have absorbed other meat processors, leaving less buyers to compete for animals. Feedlots and cattle ranchers have been forced to take lower and lower prices. From 1980 to 2017, 40% of ranchers disappeared from the USDA's census. So the ranchers in Nebraska came together to create their own plant where they can process the meat and give fair prices for premium beef. Sustainable Beef CEO David Briggs drives around the construction site where about 100 people work to move dirt and build a foundation. When the plant is operational, it'll process around 1,500 cattle a day. That's roughly 1.5% of the nation's capacity, Briggs says. Our mission was, was not to just be a local, just to take care of a community. Our, our was to help with the national security concept and to actually be a player in the overall uh, industry. Walmart will help them do that. The retailer has invested in the project and agreed to buy and distribute the majority of Sustainable Beef's product. Even with a boost from the nation's most popular grocery chain, Wasserberger says they're not trying to compete against the big four Packers. It's like comparing the Yankees to my son's T-ball team. Um, we don't want to be the Yankees. We're not pretending like we are. This model works for us and our families, and so we're going to play ball how we know. Austin Frerich is a Yale fellow who studied concentration in the meat market and says they have an uphill road. This isn't the first time ranchers have tried coming together to start their own packing plant. If they succeed, that means the big four lost a little bit of market share. And there's nothing in recent history that says those four will lose a point of market share without a fight. Past startups have tripped over logistics, collapsed under market pressure, or even been swallowed up by one of the giant packers. Still, he hopes the ranchers can find a foothold. If they can carve out a niche where they can play t-ball, at least they're playing baseball. But he says the broader industry needs regulation to truly level the playing field for projects like sustainable beef. I, I want a bunch of baseball teams. I think the best thing we can do for them is break up the big four, put competition back into these markets so they have a chance to succeed. Briggs and the ranchers know it's a challenge, but for a new future in cattle, they think it's worth a try. For Climate One, I'm Elizabeth Rembert. Elizabeth is a reporter with Harvest Public Media, a collaboration of public media newsrooms in the Midwest and Great Plains. And I just want to say one note about the term sustainable beef, which can kind of seem like a misnomer on a climate show. A lot of the cows that people eat are raised on ranches. They start their lives eating grass, but at some point they move to these feed yards or feedlots where they're fed corn and kept in more concentrated operations. And from there they go to the slaughterhouse. And so that's pretty conventional. That's the majority of beef that you find at the grocery store. And so when we talk about sustainability 
From a agricultural emissions standpoint, that might be things like capturing the methane that comes off of manure lagoons or from dairies. That's not what we're talking about in this story. Again, we're talking more about this idea that the concentrated market of meat selling, of selling cows, is just unfair. And this is trying to create a, a more regional and economically sustainable option for ranchers. Coming up, what if the biggest obstacle to progress is ourselves? The most toxic threat is the hate that is growing on Americans for each other. And, and, and this is creating an environment where we can't even talk to each other. That's up next when Climate One continues. Let's get back to my conversation with Senator Cory Booker. The most powerful way, and my favorite story in leadership, is about Gandhi entertaining visitors in his tent, the mother who asks Gandhi, you emphasize dietary discipline, and Gandhi, talk about vegan. This guy was like a fruititarian vegan. And, and she says, tell my son to stop eating sugar. And he goes, I won't. And she seems to protest. And he goes, no, I, I'm sorry, I won't. But come back in two months and ask me again. She comes back into the tent with her son. Two months later, Mahatma, sir, with great respect, my son will listen to you. His terrible dietary habits, his health is suffering. Would you tell him to stop eating sugar? Gandhi gets up, puts his hands on the son boy. Mahatma touches this child and says, my child, you must stop eating sugar. The mother was pleased. The child was affected. And she's going to leave, but she stops and says, forgive my... Uh, 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 disrespect, but why didn't you just tell my son to stop eating sugar two months ago? And he said, because two months ago, I was eating sugar. <laughs> and so I have seen in my life, the greatest impact I can have on others is when I'm deeply authentic, living according to my values. That's what often, often is. There's nothing worse than a politician that talks right and walks left. And, and, and so... I want people to pursue their joy. I want people to expand their, their understanding of, of Americans because the, the, the most toxic threat to our nation right now, I believe this, and we have real problems in America and we have real problems globally, but I think the most toxic threat is the hate that is growing on Americans for each other. And, and, and this is creating an environment where we can't even talk to each other or affirm our common values. I was campaigning pretty hard in the last midterm election, traveling all around the country. And I sat down uh, on a plane, and I often have people saying nice things to me. Often, unfortunately, people, you should all send me Mother's Day cards, because I often get called, you mother something else. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I get all kind of reactions across America as I crisscross the nation. But uh, people were being really nice to me on this plane ride, and I sit down next to a mom and a daughter, 80 and 60, and they... Uh, they they don't know who I am. And here I am, it's a large African-American male. And for my ego, some people might think this is wrong, but for my ego, I loved hearing what they said. They go, sir, who are you? Are you a professional athlete? <laughs> and I'm like, well, I could be if I wanted to. <laughs> but I said, no, ma'am, I'm, I'm, I'm a United States senator. And immediately, all of us in America, if you meet a politician, a congressperson, you want to know what tribe they're in. Are they in your tribe, their tribe, or my tribe? The otherizing, the, the impersonality of that. Where do you stand, with me or against me? Because that, and, and it's too much we have a binary world in America. And I said, ma'am, I'm a Democrat. And she looks angry at me and says, I should have brought my Trump hat. Now, there is a moment, all of life, our power is not in what happens to us. Our power is never in the stimulus. It's always in the response. And we have a choice to respond with love, empathy, compassion, or to respond with negativity, hate, lower frequencies of our being. And I look at the woman, and I'm not, I'm not dancing to this tune. And I looked at her and I go, oh my gosh, Donald Trump, he signed two of my biggest pieces of legislation into law. And, and she seems surprised by that. And I go through some of the common values of that legislation, one on criminal justice reform, one on getting investment into low-income rural and urban areas in America. And the record was scratched. We, it's a long flight. By the end of the flight, we are talking about our personal lives. I learn about their family. They learn about mine. We're affirming our commonality and talking about some of the problems in America, being we don't talk to each other. We don't listen to each other. And so my biggest worry about a lot of these issues is when they fall into the partisan divide, we stop listening. 
there's a paper I remember, if I remember correctly, they did a study where they took an arcane educational issue policy, and they said, this is a democratic policy. And immediately, 80% of the Republicans were against the policy because it was labeled a democratic policy. Yeah, sure. But Democrats were not much better when they flipped it around sure. and said it was a Republican policy. All us Democrats hated it. And, and that's the, that is the crisis because the issues we're talking about cannot be solved in a partisan way. I'm looking at the Senate right now, and I hate to tell you, the map for 2024 is looking pretty bad. We are defending a lot of seats. We being Democrats are defending seats that are going to be hard to, I hope, I'm going to be everywhere from Montana to Ohio to uh, um, uh, to even West Virginia, if Manchin will have me. Uh, um, but, but, but my point is, we have got to start, not only, I, I think every election matters, every election's important, but somehow we have to commit ourselves to creating more dialogue, more ability to affirm each other's humanity and still believe that we have common cause in this country. Because when America acts with a sense of increased compassion and empathy and common cause, we dazzle humanity in what we achieve. From immigration laws that let the entire planet's diversity come here and breakthroughs in science, uh, defying gravity going to the moon, to even aff affirmations of human rights and human dignity that have put us as a standard bearer uh, for a planet that's still struggling with LGBTQ rights, uh, as we see in Uganda and elsewhere. We can do these things when we stop hating each other, and even if we disagree, find ways to affirm uh, this commonality. I call it love. People could call it just affirming your fellow citizenship. <laughs> And so I'm not saying that there are big issues, I keep returning to gun violence, that, that anguish me. I, I've lost people I know to, to assault rifles. I'm not saying that we're going to solve those with kumbaya moments, but I know we can't solve those unless two things happen. One is we stop demonization, which often prevents coalition. And number two, is what King said. When we rush to demonize the other side, we forget the wisdom of what King said. So what we have to repent for in this day and age is not just the vitriolic words and violent actions of the bad people, but the appalling silence and inaction of the good people. To me, whether it's climate change or gun violence, if you poll these issues, Democrat, Republicans, most people agree with us. But yet there's too many people that are not turning their head and their heart as, as Frederick Douglass says, I prayed for years for my freedom, and I was still a slave. It wasn't until I started praying with my feet that I found my freedom. More people need to get up off the couch, like the guy watching the Edmund Pettus Bridge, who said, you know what? I'm not going to let my inability to do everything, to undermine my determination to do something. I'm going to do the best I can with what I have where I am. But the key is to do something. This is what we're missing. There are too many people on the sidelines of America and don't realize they're needed to make history and to save the future. Oil companies have lied and deceived the American public for a long time, in particular executives. And again, like you said about China, it's the Chinese government, not the Chinese people, not every rank and file worker who works in the fossil industry. They hear that and might say, oh, you think I'm bad. And yes. then we have that division. Executives, certain companies, particularly Exxon, some people in the climate and the left think that oil companies, that anything's uh, that's bad for that, you know, anything that's good for them must be bad, that they have to be like run out of business, right. don't want to deal with them. What's your approach to the villains, which in this case, the industry, you talk about empathy and working with people you disagree with. How do you apply that to the fossil fuel? Industry? Well, I'll say some things that, you know, Frederick, uh, excuse me, Abraham Lincoln said that too much agreement kills a conversation. Um, I am a guy that really believes, because I'm on the Foreign Relations Committee, I see the global context, that Americans are demanding oil. <laughs> they are. So when you point your finger and want to vilify the people that are delivering oil to your pump, you got to look in the mirror first. That's hard. It's hard. And then Americans might want to, and it's a global market, by the way. We're not living on the oil that we're drilling here in the United States. We're buying oil from around the world. And... We may succeed in stopping some drilling here, but if we're still not doing anything about demand, guess where that oil is coming from? Nigeria. Yeah. Places that have worse environmental protections. Your oil drilled here has better carbon models than the oil drilled over there. And then these are petrodictators 
who are engaged in that oil is like you're paying blood money there. So let's, let's not be too self-righteous about the problem we have here. I'm a big believer that we need to be fast-tracking our efforts to get the demand for oil lower. And, and, this is, and without vilifying, but start to try to expand the promise. Now, I'll give you one example. We were talking about this in the car right over here because we thought you were going to bring this up. I'm grateful you didn't, so I don't know why I'm about to. <laughs> 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 um, this is why my staff, it's like, you know, they find this with driving tests. If you, felt, if you look at the, don't look at the barrier, don't, you're looking at the barrier, you drive into the barrier. <laughs> um, they made me look at this beforehand, but we just had a big moment on the Senate floor where part of the debt ceiling fight were some permitting issues. And I'm surprised. I get Democrats telling me, Corey, we got to do some permitting reform. And I'm like, yeah, I'm all for permitting. We need, in order to get the transmission, we have massive transmission problems now with solar wind. How are we going to get that? We definitely need permitting reform or else the slowness of our transition off of oil is going to be affected. I'm the biggest believer in permitting reform. And I'm the biggest believer in just dumb regulation, stopping things. When I was mayor of the city of Newark, I had people bringing in cargo putting it on trucks and driving it to exit 8A, far away from Newark, warehousing it there. And then when it needed to be sent out, they took part of it back into Newark, spewing all this carbon into the air and smog that gives my kids four times the asthma rates. So I said, all this vacant land in Newark, I want to build down there. But the EPA comes in and says, well, you have to have groundwater standards at the same level as residential. And so I had to start jumping over all these environmental hoops that ultimately were going to reduce the amount of carbon that I had. You're, you're causing the problem through your environmental delays that I need to do. So I'm, you'll we'll find very few Democrats as friendly towards me as understanding that we need to have the common goal here and not mess it up with all this muckety-muck. But, but what I, I get so frustrated about, and I wish Americans could have, been, could have seen everything that I see, you know, we did this environmental injustice tour through America. And from going to Duplin County, North Carolina, where the CAFOs are, where these contract farmers who have miserable lives, because they're nothing, they're, they're, they're a few steps short of sharecroppers, but these big multinational pork corporations who three or four of them control the whole market, dictate to the contract farmers how they have to raise things, big warehouses of pigs, all of the feces going through these grates into massive lagoons, and then they're sprayed onto fields in low-income communities. And so you walk through these communi this community of African Americans who have been on that land since slave times, sl since slavery was around, and now the value of their land has gone to the floor. They can't open their windows. They can't put their clothing on the lines. They have respiratory diseases, clusters of disease that are, that are spiked, and they sit there and say, how can we have this happen. How could Americans eat their bacon and not understand what's, how we're suffering? We're separate from, we're totally we're, separate. We, we, again, it's the lines that divide us that stop us from having empathy and understanding that forget your, whatever religion, love your neighbor. It's not a geographic thing. We're all each other's neighbors. But I'm just, tra I travel to, to a place called Cancer Alley. You don't need to know. Look up Cancer Alley. You're going to see a section of the Mississippi that's in uh, 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 near Baton Rouge, where you can, it happens again to be a low-income community, this is a low-income African-American community, where the particulates in the air, all of these things that have been permitted that spew these chemical plants are spewing stuff in the air, their cancer rates, cancer clusters. I sat and I couldn't hold back my tears. As family after family in this crowded black church were getting up and telling about their family members that have died of cancer. I could take you Uniontown, Alabama, I could go through the places where we don't know the absolute misery and suffering of other Americans based upon systems, whether it's petrochemicals or the food industry that are poisoning Americans right now. And, and so that's my bigger frustration is that, again, there are too many people that just don't know about the systems that we're participating on. And when you expand that lens beyond America and you start visiting other countries, whether it's people working in warehouses that produce the devices we carry around or, or the clothing that we have, the poverty that worries me most, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a United States senator that made a decision to live for the last 25 years in a community 
at, or below the poverty line where we don't mistake wealth with worth. I do a lot of economic justice things, the child tax credit, me, Bennett, Brown, others fought for it that helped cut poverty, but we couldn't get it to be permanent. Common sense things to address poverty, I do it internationally. But the poverty that most worries me every day is the poverty of empathy in this world, where somehow we, we just don't understand the suffering of someone that often is not that far away, that we feel no, again, it's not about blame, it's about responsibility, that we feel no responsibility in and live in a, in a blissful ignorance of the challenges that are affecting people, Democrat, Republican, forget, they're affecting people, human beings. And until we can close that gap, then things are not gonna, then things, uh, until we close that gap, we're not gonna make the changes we need to make. Thank you for that. I wish more senators had thought that way and talked that way. And thank you, Senator, for bringing the power of your heart and your mindfulness into this conversation. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Cora Booker, thank you. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. Talking about climate can be hard and, as you heard today, exciting. And it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. You can do it right now on your device. On our new website, you can create and share playlists focused on topics including food, energy, EVs, activism, and more. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper, empathic climate conversation. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Austin Cologne is producer and editor. Megan Basilia is our production manager. Wensi Shada is our development manager, and Ben Testani is our communications manager. Our theme music was composed by George Young. Greg Dalton is host and executive producer. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Ariana Brocious. <laughs>